2: and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Ann Foster. And today I'm really excited to share this author interview with you. So the woman who I'm talking to is Maddie Kahn, whose book has just been published this week and it's called Young and Restless, The Girls Who Sparked America's Revolutions. It's such an interesting and necessary book. And she and I talk about in this conversation, when she went to write it, she's like, well, surely someone has written a book like this before and no one really has especially not one that's kind of readable and fun and interesting. So she's literally looking at girls like teenage girls. It's, you know, the concept of teenager wasn't invented until the 20th century. So she, but she's looking at previous years as well, but basically young unmarried women and how they came together to spark various revolutions throughout the history of America. And it goes right up to the present day. It's such an interesting book. I know that there are young people who listen to this podcast and I hope that this episode and this book, if you're able to read it, will make you feel seen and maybe inspired, but also for for adults listening. It's a reminder that this, it's not new. The fact that young people are making noise, you know, leading the climate strike and stuff like this is building on a legacy of other young people. You know, there's been people of all genders doing this stuff, but this book specifically looks at how young girls have been involved, which is a double-edged thing of kind of being like, look at these cute young heroes. And then when they become adults, it's easier to dismiss them because they're not cute anymore. Or also there's just something about something about girls that are easy to sort of tokenize and then also to dismiss. And this book really dives into that. So just to let you know a bit about the author, Maddie Kahn. So her work has been published in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Harper's Bazaar, Vogue, Vox, and more. She was the culture director at Glamour, where she covered women's issues in politics, and a staff editor at Elle magazine. She lives in New York, and this this book is just coming out this week, so I was really excited to to get to have a talk with her. So I'm joined
3: today by Maddie Kahn, author of Young and Restless, The Girls Who Sparked America's Revolutions, which is a new nonfiction. I guess you call it like a group biography of numerous girls in American history and how they were revolutionaries, basically. Welcome, Maddie. Thank you. Can you first just explain the, the, like how you came up with the idea for this book, how it came about?
1: Yeah, sure. I worked my whole sort of full time editor career in women's magazines. So I started working at Elle and I worked there for a bunch of years. And then I worked at Glamour. Um, And in the course of working in those places, I felt like I was coming across a lot of incredible young women. I profiled Greta Thunberg, whose name I think basically most people know, uh, the Swedish climate activist. And I talked to the teenagers from Parkland who were leading the charge against gun violence. And this was also around the time that. Black Lives Matter was coalescing, and I was reading about huge 30,000 person marches that were being planned via Twitter DMs and among high school students. And I thought, there's something really amazing about this generation of young women. And I thought, you know, that might be something I want to explore. And so I started thinking that maybe I would write a book about what was going on with this cohort of young women in particular. And then the more work that I did and the more that I read, the more it became clear that this was actually a very old story and that young women have been on the forefront of social change in a way that America seems to have amnesia about uh, in every generation, pretty much, and in almost every major social movement uh, for progress. So that was true in the early labor movement of the 1800s, where factory workers went on strike, most of whom were young, unmarried women and girls. And then obviously that was true during civil rights when students really helped lead some of the efforts for change. And uh, that continues to be true until today. So the project started with one set of parameters and then it got much, much bigger. Uh, But yeah, that was kind of the origin story for me.
3: And how did you, like, do you go into it with sort of an idea of which? Which decades or which stories you're going to look at? Or did that kind of develop as you were starting to research?
1: Well, initially, actually, I thought, well, the concept of a teenager isn't that old. It's sort of an invention of the 1930s and 40s. And I thought maybe the story would start then, that as soon as America sort of developed a vocabulary for this period of adolescence, that's when the story would really begin. But then when I did more research, I felt like I would be shortchanging these amazing young women from an earlier time before we necessarily had the language to describe what stage of life they were in. And so then the timeline stretched back even further. I think one of the things that I thought a lot about and that took a a long time to figure out was how I wanted the book to be structured. I knew that I wanted to go in chronological order and I wanted to sort of provide this alternative history of Social progress in the US through the lens of teenage girls, but it's hard to choose. You know, I could have filled several books with the stories of amazing young women, and I had to figure out what are the parameters that are going to decide who is and who isn't in the book. And so, one of the things that I did and that developed definitely over time was I wanted to profile individual young women, and I also wanted those stories to each of those stories to illustrate a point about how girls in particular organize. And so the book is both chronological and, as you said, sort of this group biography. And also, I hope that each one of sort of the main stories of these chapters explains a little bit about how girls do their activism, whether that's through, you know, leveraging friendship as a tool of organization or it's about uh, the value of self-presentation in protest. And that definitely took longer to figure out. And I felt like I started writing the first draft before I totally knew how it was going to Go And over time, it became clearer and clearer that this was, you know, both a chronological story and also a story that I hope answers the question of what makes girls such capable activists.
3: And I really found it really interesting. Like I knew broadly, like some of the eras and things you're talking about, like the labor movement and the civil rights movement, suffragettes and things like that. But you also honed in on some specific people whose names I had never heard And you were really, I was impressed with how you were able to find, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like intersectional stories. It's not like, here's a bunch of white girls in America doing stuff. It's like, no, you have people who are um, Chinese immigrants. You talk about, like, obviously the civil rights era, but like, you're really, you're not just talking about just the white people. And even when you are talking about just the white people, you do like mention like, and you know, heads up, like this, it was different for black people and stuff. Like, so it's not just the history of white people. So yeah. You, yeah. I imagine that was part of your intent with to... it.
1: Totally. Yeah. I think that I think one of the things that it, you're at a disadvantage of when you're ever you're talking about women's history, history in general is, yes, a lot of what we have recorded. We have because the people who are deciding whether to keep or toss, you know, written accounts, oral accounts, those kinds of things, someone had to be deciding those things were worth preserving. And so it's always, always going to be an uphill battle to tell a complete picture of, or even a more partially complete picture of what history looks like, since, of course, a lot of what people decided was worth preserving is a story of white people and of white men in particular. And so I, I, there, I wouldn't even have done the project if I didn't feel like I could at least include stories of people, yeah, who didn't appear in the history books I read in school. And as I always say, like, I got a great education, or I felt like I got a really great education. And yet these stories were missing across the board. So it is always a bit of um, a process of sort of panning for gold to find the stories of people whose names you might not know. I think that uh, one of the things that felt really important to me was to center the voices of the girls themselves. So in also in choosing, I didn't want to just choose young women of any background where all the stories were told about them and we didn't have anything in their own voice. So, for example, you mentioned Chinese immigration. Mabel Pinghua Lee shows up uh, in the chapter on the suffrage movement. And what was amazing was to find the minutes from the organization of Chinese students that she was part of that included her speeches, you know, the things she said on the floor. It just felt like this, I don't know, like an echo through history to be able to hear her in her own voice. And I think one of the things you have to be conscious of when you're telling other people's stories for them and they're no longer here to tell them themselves is to think, how can I... Center their voice as much as possible. And so when I was looking for these other stories, you know, Mexican immigrants, Native American stories across the board that weren't our conventional image of white history. I wanted to be sure that I had those quote marks, that there were places where I could put the voices of these young women. And I will say every time it felt like a huge privilege Um, and nothing would thrill me more than for some of the names of the women in this book to start to feel as familiar to people as the names that we know better from our high school education.
3: I wanted to also ask you about, so I think it's in the very, the introduction of your book, you're talking about one of the inspirations for the book was when you first found out about Sybil Luddington. Yeah. The American but then as you're at the introduction, goes on, you're like, oh, I thought this was a great story. And then you learned who she was. And then you learn the next layer of like, oh, actually, but did she do that? Oh, actually, there's other people who did that. stuff. Huh? can you talk a bit about your journey with that?
1: Yeah. I think one of the things that's interesting about doing a project like this is you do, and I think this is true of writing in general, at least for me, when I'm being honest, is you go into things like this, and you kind of have hopes for what you'll find. And you do, I think, have to check yourself a lot to say, like, am I seeing what is really here? Or am I seeing what I want to see from this story? And it's true that Sybil Huntington, who is reputed to have ridden farther and faster than Paul Revere to warn her father, who had a militia in sort of early America around the time of the Revolutionary War that the British were coming, that story has been told ad nauseum by people who are interested in the metaphor, I think I would say, of Sybil Ludington. She's this teenage girl. She's done this this physical feat in service of military power uh, in, in service of being a good daughter and warning her father. I heard first heard the story, which I mentioned in the introduction, um, when I was covering former Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney for a story for Elle magazine. Maloney was trying to raise money to build a women's history museum on the National Mall, which is a project anyone can read about. It's been going on for like 25 years. But the story of Sublettington was so powerful to the people that she was talking to, because it was like, here's this example of the, unsung American girl and talk about whiteness. I mean, she has all the qualities I think that we think of as valorous, I guess, a good daughter, white American girl, capable, resourceful, all these things. And when I first heard the story and I was thinking about this book at the time, I thought like perfect opener for me, you know, ideal, I just what I'm looking for. And then when I started doing research into her, I found this really checkered historical record with people, some historians saying she did do that. Some scholars saying she probably never, she never did. And no way to really find out. I mean, we don't have, there's no, you can't pull the surveillance footage, you know, there's no way to find out exactly what happened. And in a way, I found it to be an even better place to begin to open the book with the reality that some of these things are unknown. And also that women's history, like I said, because it's been deemed unimportant for so long or not even not even evaluated in terms of its importance, just totally ignored, there's always going to be a little bit of a feeling of quicksand when you're wading through the archives to try to figure out what really happened. And I think that she became an even better place to begin because throughout these many decades in which her story has been invoked by feminists, by people fighting, you know, by people trying to preserve daughters of the American Revolution, you know, on the other side of the political spectrum. Her story has always been useful because I think the stories of extraordinary girls have always been useful to people who are trying to make an argument about where this country is headed. And so I wanted to open the book with her and the question mark next to her contributions to American history because I think Anyone who's telling a story like this also has to interrogate themselves, which I felt I was doing a lot during this process, of why am I foregrounding these stories? And what am I trying to say about American girls by telling them? So it was a useful check for me. And uh, what do I personally think about Sylva Ludington? I'm sure she did something. But I also think our desire to ascribe this kind of quality of greatness to her says a lot about what we want from American young women.
3: Well, that really connects to with, sort of an overarching theme you talk about it in different ways in different chapters in the book but the concept of like looking at girls and being like they are our future you know like they are these heroes they're these perfect people and at the same time also dismissing girls and what that what that says like how did you I don't know what can you just expand on that that concept I find it so interesting because like with Greta Thunberg for instance people like oh she's gonna like save the environment it's like well why is it up to her
1: yeah Uh, Completely. Yes. I think that one of the helpful ways of thinking about it for me is like to think about how we treat American child stars. There's like a similar dynamic there where on the one hand, they're kind of like our hopes and dreams, the most airbrushed version of what American childhood should be. On the other hand, we know that we're kind of putting them through a completely ridiculous, often traumatizing process by elevating them in this way. And yet they feel somehow essential to the culture that like we could never forego our child stars. I think things have changed since the peak of the Disney child star era that I grew up in. Obviously, we're far away from the Shirley Temples of the world. But I do think that that push-pull around the, the valorization of childhood and the obsession with childhood, and on the other hand, totally being dismissive of children and anything they might want to contribute to society outside of their cuteness is kind of like a general paradigm of American growing up. I think that with girls in particular, and with I would say with youth activism in general, there's a feeling of relief on some level, that even if we as flawed adults have made mistakes or have compromised or have abandoned our ideals in some way, every generation gets the chance to kind of do it again and to see principled young people in a culture that is frankly obsessed with youth, I think stokes a lot of enthusiasm from people. But when you listen to what people like Greta or other climate activists or anti-gun violence activists, what they actually say is often, "I wish I didn't need to be here." Greta has certainly said that tons of people involved in in you know trying to get gun legislation passed have said that why is this my job remind me why do i have to do this i like to remind people kids can't vote you know most high school students can't vote their their microphone is really the only leverage that they have in public being able to be heard and so we as you know the voting law-passing group of people in society have a lot more power. And it's kind of, I think, a tricky way of absolving ourselves of responsibility to say how amazing young people are and how inspiring they are. We actually have a lot more that we could do than they can. And yet it feels nice to sit back and say how incredible they are and and what good they're going to do for society.
3: No, exactly. It's so... There's that patronizing edge to be like, oh, you know, like the future is bright, everything's great. Because look at these young people, like the next generation is going to be great. Where it's like, yeah, but the people in power are like 70 years old, like they're not leaving
1: totally. And I think that it, it, I think one of the reasons why, one thing that I tried to understand when I was working on this is why is it that there are these girls in basically every single generation and yet their stories fall out of the historical record. And I think one of the reasons is because what people will say or what people on some level will think is that young women are great communicators and they've been amazing messengers for causes throughout you know the years, but they don't have strategic power. They're not political actors the way adults are. I think that's ridiculous. That's one of the things I try to show in the book is that often the way these girls were organizing was incredibly strategic. They're not just mouthpieces. They really are sophisticated political strategists. But I think one of the things that we risk is we move the, the sphere of power into one group of people. Like you said, a lot of white men in their 70s and, and increasingly in their 80s and some women. And then we move sort of the spotlight onto young activists we need those things to come closer together. Uh, This isn't a huge part of the book, but I am always interested in sort of the policy solutions that will start to give young people more political representation. It really can't be enough to say they're such good messengers for these causes and not take seriously what they think should be done about them. You can't say young people are our future and expect them to fix things and then not give them a seat at the table to be heard on what they think needs to be done.
3: Well, I thought it was interesting too, in your chapter about the suffragettes where you do Like one of the kind of main characters of it is Mabel Ping Hua Lee, and you mentioned like she was a young girl at that time, and she was among many young girls. And I think you say something about that the suffragette organizers were mostly women, like adult women, but they were like, but they knew the PR of it. Like if they had young women in their parade, like in their marches, that would look good. So then they, so they knew they recognized the power of having young people involved, which is not dissimilar to nowadays, really.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think of the suffragettes, they're such an interesting example too, because, you know, when you think about that movement, it's, this I think is true in all social movements or or I would say at least many, but it's particularly stark in the case of advocating for the women's vote because it was so clear and so palpable that the way to win that battle, you had to get, they didn't have the voting power that was going to be needed to give them the right to vote. So you have to win over people who kind of have a basic interest in keeping things the way they are. The people who are empowered to give women the vote are men. And no women can vote until, they, until men give women the power to vote. So the optics of the campaign were especially important because they had to sell people who sort of had no obvious selfish interest in this fight in coming around. And that made it so that you couldn't just... You know, there was this debate and this comes up in that chapter over going like totally scorched earth, aggressive tactics of organizing versus trying a little bit more of like kind of the placating mode of persuasion. And I think what U.S. activists realize is you kind of need a little bit of both. And one of the things that they recognized early, I think, is that like organizing is also advertising. And you need to have a good marketing campaign to pull off the kind of social change that these women were envisioning. And beautiful young women representing America's future as they do were a really big part of that. And that came at tremendous cost, and this is in that chapter too, to black women who were sidelined, you know, in the in the public relations part of that campaign, and to people like Mabel, who were treated as you know being a chinese immigrant as she was kind of as a curiosity fetishized in this way even though she was an extraordinarily capable and talented organizer in her own right and so one thing i wanted to be sure to do was to never justify the real marginalization of certain women or other groups of people in favor of the overarching cause i think we all have to be honest about who was sacrificed to achieve whatever progress is achieved you know in all of these movements
3: well, and I think with, with Mabel and with some of the other figures, you follow, and you're saying you're looking at their actual words, which means you're looking at when they're giving speeches and things. So you're following them into adulthood. And I find that really interesting too. And we see that happening now today with like the young activists when they grow up. There's not that, oh, aren't they cute? Look at them. They're advocating for things to change. Once they become adults, their voice like it changes. It changes the way that people view them. It reminds me of, um, a few months ago, I was speaking to an author named Max Wallace. He wrote a new biography of Helen Keller, focusing on her revolutionary politics. And it was a really similar thing there, where people were like, "Oh, she's this deafblind girl at the well, isn't she inspiring?" And it's like, "Yeah, but starting from age about 18, she was like a like rabid like socialist. Like she wanted to like destroy capitalism." And I was like, mm, "But she was so cute when she was young." So it's just a way to dismiss. Like if you focus just on what people do is when they're kids. That it's always sort of dismissed what they do as adults in this weird way.
2: And now we're just gonna take a break for a word from our sponsors.
1: My name is Jenny Owen Youngs, and I'm Kristen Russo. And together we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at bufferingcast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. and we're back. Totally. And I also think that, and this is, that's a good example of it too. I think one of the obsessions with turning some of these activists into celebrities, it's a complicated thing because on the one hand, the visibility undoubtedly helps the cause to a degree. You know, we talk more about climate change in, in, in the public arena. I think Greta did help that. Undoubtedly, she got people to pay attention in a way that they hadn't been paying attention to tons of grown people who were saying this is a huge problem. And also, you know, the weather got increasingly bad and everything's falling apart. But let's leave that on the side. But on the other hand, I think one of the things that is very common that happens a lot to young activists, both men and women, is that... In a way, the obsession over the cuteness, the articulateness, the precociousness is also a way of kind of separating the person from the movement. It's a way of turning them into a star and not grappling as much with what they're asking for. And I think that that happens a lot. And that's one of the reasons that the transition from being a childhood kind of spokesperson for something to an adult activist and organizer is hard because then the gap between who you are and what you have to offer and the thing that you're actually calling for narrows. And people don't necessarily always want to engage in the thing that you're calling for. So when Helen Keller was an inspirational figure, you know, doing things that spoke to her individual perseverance, that's a great story. But when she's calling for, you know, basically an inversion of, uh, of our societal structure well, that doesn't seem so cute anymore. Like that's not that's not part of the story that we tell about her. That's part of what she's asking for. Um, and I think that's something that increasingly, because I think young people now are so sophisticated, people are really aware of. And it's hard to see if you're an organizer and you want to achieve certain kinds of social change. It's hard to see your own identity be used kind of against the thing that you're asking for. And I was very interested in talking to, you know, once... The people that are in the book were are still alive after you get past sort of the civil rights movement in asking them about how that felt to see themselves turned into kind of a cultural commodity when really they had been trying to redirect attention to, you know, a certain thing that they thought was really wrong.
3: I thought that was such a, like the way that your book, you mentioned before, like it's done chronologically, which I found really helpful. I don't know, and interesting, but it also shows like generation after generation, like the young girls were organizing in very similar ways, getting up to present day. If we go back to the very first chapter, I was honestly so surprised how long ago your first story was about the Lowell Girls. Like you were saying like 1836 and I thought 1836. Like I assumed this book would have started with the suffragettes. or with labor movements in the, I don't know, 1900s. But can you talk about the Lowell Girls and the fact that the one leader, I think it's intentional on your part, but you're describing all the stuff she does. And then you say, she was 11 years old. Like, I was like, what? Like Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I was, I, uh, like I said, I thought that I would begin the, the sort of phrase adolescence, the idea of the adolescent is an invention of the 20th century. It starts really in the beginning of the 1900s. And I definitely thought like, that's where the story will begin because at what point do young women recognize themselves as something other than little kids and women? Like when does that middle stage, which is the piece of things that's most interesting to me, when does that come into being? So the Lowell Mill Girls, who I came across years ago, and actually credit to Rebecca Traster, who has written the books Good and Mad and All the Single Ladies, the Lowell Mill Girls are mentioned in both of those books. I had come across them, I think, just as a reader of those books. And then I can't remember why they came back on my radar when I started researching this book. But what became fascinating to me and what felt like making that the perfect place to begin was that basically in the 1800s, these textile mills begin to be built alongside the rivers in the American Northeast. And uh, they need a workforce and farmers aren't going to give up their family farms to go work there. And the sort of mastermind of the mills decides, why don't I recruit kind of, for lack of a better term, anachronistically, teenage girls. These girls who are not yet married, who are old enough that they're already helping on their family farms, I'll pay them and then they can earn this wage. And he had initially envisioned this workforce as like a turnover, uh, you know, hundred percent turnover workforce where Girls come and do this for a few years, they end up getting married, a new generation of girls replaces them. It's not meant to be a career. It's meant to be sort of a holding pen between being a young, young girl and being a married woman. And I don't want to romanticize these mills. I mean, it's brutal, hard labor, but it also was one of the first opportunities that these girls would have had to earn their own money, which I think any person who's ever gotten that first paycheck knows it's an incredibly powerful thing. And it meant that these girls were living together away from their families for the first time ever. And so accidentally, it sort of invented this high school-like environment in the 1830s, where girls were together away from their parents, away from their siblings as a social cohort long before they would have been expected to go to high school. Certainly, it's just the beginning of women's colleges. And it's this opportunity to exchange and share and talk and dream and fantasize and have these kinds of future plotting exercises together outside of the nuclear family. And it became a place where girls, for the first time, articulated kind of what they wanted from life in a way that no one had ever asked them to think about before. And what I loved about the chapter and what I was insistent on including was the way the girls shopped and the way they spent their money informed what they felt entitled to. So they start buying their own shoes. They start buying their own dresses for the first time. And as they kind of round out their personalities through these material things, they start to feel like it's not fair, the conditions here. We're being worked too hard. We're not getting paid enough. And the process of kind of having their own sense of self, their own self-worth, partially as this weird result of this workforce meant that they decided to strike and that they wrote up this constitution for themselves, complete with a preamble that sounds a lot, probably like a constitutional preamble that most people would recognize. And it felt to me really radical. And I just felt like, well, they belong in this book. And yes, Harriet Hansen, who is kind of one of the stars of that chapter, decides, you know, there's no way she's going to miss out on this strike. She ends up leading her entire room of, you know, doffers out of their factories to take to the streets. And yes, she is 11 years old. So I was interested in sort of this invention accidentally of this period of girlhood that America wouldn't have recognized at that point before we know about teenagers, before we even know about adolescence. And it felt to me like this really, again, kind of accidental unleashing of girlhood power that felt like the perfect place to begin.
3: I love that. I love the way you describe it as a sort of accidental thing, like accidentally developing these girls were living together, which is sort of inspires a sense of independence. But then also they were inspiring each other to sort I don't know. I, I I love the fact that it I think that's the sort of thing that people who want to inhibit or reduce the amount of education for girls or to amount like People are banning books and stuff. It's like, oh, young people can't get ideas. And this is showing people just got ideas not by through education specifically, but just through proximity, just through sort of being together and inspiring each other. Like you can't stop people from getting these ideas.
1: Yeah, and I write about this too. But one of the things that I found so moving about the Lowell Mill Girls is that they started these magazines while they were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're amazing documents, and you you can read them. You can read all the archives are are still there, and they're these incredible like you would think of them as kind of the doodles in the margins of a history textbook in high school. You know, girls talking about their dreams and uh, writing funny limericks and having inside jokes and sort of behaving in all the ways that we associate with being a teenager. And what I loved is that years and years and years later, uh, during the beginning of second wave feminism, two books anthologize writing of women in America, and both include excerpts from these magazines, including the Lowell Offering, which is sort of the most famous one. And you would think, you know, these strategic, political, radical second wave feminists, like what are they doing, including the the musings of 11-year-olds in these compendiums of, and anthologies of women's writing. And when a reviewer for the Times reviews these, and this has got to be in like the 60s and 70s, uh, so almost a century later, he says, and of course they had a man review these books, so just take from it what you will, he says that this, he sees this as like the first feminist writing, this sense of declaration of I'm here, these are my ideas, this is what I want to say. And I really sometimes feel like I could just cry thinking about it. I think that that's so powerful that for generations, young women have said, this is what I think as a way of declaring kind of who they are. And so that also gave me this amazing arc that the second wave feminists and people today do see as their own roots, the Lowell Mill girls. It justified even more for me why they are part of this story.
3: Well, and speaking of feminism, I, said, I think we're, you and I are a similar age, but it. I also, I really resonated with a part of the book where you were saying, like, growing up, you were attracted to causes, you know, like environmental causes and things like that. But, like, feminism was just kind of like, uh, no, that's not really a thing. Like, that just felt to me, um, like, old fashioned. It's like, oh, we don't need to worry about that anymore. Like, that's all been solved. Like, yeah. everything
1: is fine. I felt like I felt. that for sure.
3: Yeah, exactly. And you said something like that in the book as well. And I was just like, oh, yeah, no, because I didn't. See myself, I didn't consider myself a feminist until I was in my twenties when I started to actually pay more attention to what was going on in the world. But it felt like growing up like in the nineties, just sort of like, oh, that's just sort of like that's for like older women. That's for like women who are like baby boomer age, who like go and I don't know, do a drum circle together. And I'm just like, Well that's just kind of a quaint thing. It didn't used to matter. So what do you see like in terms of the young people that you've talked to more recently? Like what in terms of them and the word feminism and embracing it?
1: Yeah, I think there still is, and this is unfortunate now that I squarely do identify as a feminist, a sense of that's besides the point as its own goal. That I think when I, you know, I talked to tons of young people for the book, I think a lot of people still do feel like equality, gender equality is a byproduct of fixing some other bigger structural issues in society. And that once we do that stuff, gender equality naturally follows. What I have come to feel, and I don't think I would say, to be fair to Gen Z, I'm squarely millennial, I do feel the aversion to the word feminist was more of a millennial thing. And I definitely grew up thinking, you know, my mom, ardent second-wave feminist, would tell me about when women couldn't get credit cards in their own names. It just felt like we've done all that already. And the undercurrent of what it really means to live in a gender-equal society felt like I didn't really recognize that until I started being a working person and encountering what that looked like. But what I do think is true is that sometimes it can feel like we have other more pressing issues, like the annihilation of the planet, for example. Certainly, I think during you know the George Floyd protests, and, and I, I can understand this completely, the charge against feminism has always been these other things are killing us and feminism is a nice to have, not a need to have, compared to structural forces that are causing more immediate violent damage. I think what a lot of people have come to recognize now that we're living in a post row society, sexism is deadly and lethal, um, and women die of it really every day. Uh, what I think Gen Z is smart about is recognizing that part of that is connected to and needs to be ameliorated by fighting the gun violence epidemic, for example, which disproportionately hurts women, dealing with climate change, which on a global level is going to disproportionately affect poor women of color. And I think that the way in which overlapping global crises make sense to them means that feminism is inherently embedded in these issues in a way that I don't know that when we were young, we fully recognized. So credit to them. I think feminism as a PR move needs to make its... um, make it the immediacy of our need for it a little bit more obvious. Unfortunately, I think current events are doing that job for it because I think now that we're living in this very scary time for reproductive rights, it's much clearer to people that this is not something that has been solved.
3: No, exactly. And so that's why I really appreciate that your book goes chronologically and like ending with contemporary issues, like talking about what's going on, like today's the young activists of today who are, you know, teenagers now. And I don't know, I say I'm not, I don't think there was a book like this before. And so I really appreciated the way that you wrapped everything together and sort of to show, as you said, like, I think the answer to my very first question, you thought like, oh, right about like this, like unprecedented thing, young girls today, where it's like, oh, no, this has been, yeah.
1: Yeah, of. seriously precedented, it turns out. Yeah. And one of the things I want, I hope that the book does is because it's this collection of stories that it makes it harder to forget again about the contributions of young women so that hopefully whoever comes after Gen Z won't feel like they are the first people to be doing this. And I also think it really is a tactic of the status quo to accelerate that process of amnesia it's much harder to start again than it is to recognize that you're building on this incredible foundation. And so if young women really understood and were allowed to really understand, and we see this now with all this policing of education, if they really were allowed to see themselves as part of this continuum of women who have organized to try to make the world better, it wouldn't feel necessarily quite so daunting as it does now, thinking that you're the first person to recognize these issues. Um, And so I would love for the book to be that touchstone to say, you are building on incredible, incredible work of previous generations and that work can be done. And the older women who did this before, a lot of them are still around and they would love for you to ask them what it was like when they were teenagers, you know, fighting these battles. And I think that is, in a lot of ways, there are parts of the book that I think are a little bleak uh, for a story about um, the incredible qualities of teenage girls. But I think the hopeful note is that I do believe intergenerational organizing is the answer to some of the feelings of burnout and resignation that young women feel. And I hope that the book is a reminder to people that this work is ongoing. People have always been doing it. And We have pushed things forward. I will say I didn't feel quite so optimistic last summer when I was re-editing the chapter on Roe to account for recent developments on that front. But I have huge faith in young women and and writing this book has only given me
3: more. I think that's a beautiful way to end this conversation. I know that there are some, there are young people who listen to this podcast, which startled me when I first figured Mm -hmm. that out. I just thought I was, you know, like I just got it as a feminist women's history podcast and I just figured that my audience would be adult people but like I've heard from like eighth graders like people in high school who are listening to it so I think that this book is and that's sort of why I was really drawn to your book to be like yeah like let's talk about young girls in history and how they've always been organizing and speaking out and stuff so I think it's really great to have this book as a reminder to adults as well as sort of inspire younger people
1: And I like to tell people, too, if you've ever read a book that had any kind of military history in it, you've read about and taken seriously the history of teenage boys. So here is your opportunity to take seriously the history of teenage girls, which deserves to me no less attention, no less admiration. I think people often forget the soldiers that you love to read about are 18, 19, 20. So I think we can make room on our shelves for one book about the incredible contributions of young women.
2: Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: So again, the title of Maddie's book is Young and Restless, The Girls Who Sparked America's Revolutions. And it's just come out this week. So you'll be able to pick that up wherever you get your books from. And there's a link in the show notes so you can learn more about her and about her book um, and also links to buy the book as well. And so this podcast is Vulgar History. You can follow us on Instagram at vulgar history pod. I'm on TikTok at vulgar history. You can find transcripts to, for recent episodes at vulgarhistory.com. Those are done by Aveline Malik of the Wordery. I also have a Patreon, which is patreoncom Writer, where you can get early ad-free access to my podcast and also some bonus podcasts only available for Patreons only. I also have a merch store, so you can go to vulgarhistory.com/store. That's the good link for people who are in the U.S. If you live elsewhere, just in terms of shipping costs and stuff, I recommend using the alternate store, which is vulgarhistory.redbubble.com. And anyway, I hope you're all having a nice day when you're listening to this. And I'll be back next week with some more episodes. So until then, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi.
3: What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.